0: Good evening and welcome back to part two on the Marami Rottenberg. A big thank you again to Rabbi Zimman for coming last week. We've had remarkable feedback from the last episode and we're looking forward to featuring him again on the podcast if he is able to. Rabbi Hirsch, we left off last week by saying that the ransom story is not as simple as it seems. You said that the Marshal can't understand why it would not be paid in such a case. The Roche never speaks about the ransom being too exorbitant. And the 16, was it 16 documents? Indeed. Doesn't mention it either. So you left yep. us, as usual, on the cliffhanger. What on earth happened? Why did he not get out of jail?
1: Right. Well, it wouldn't be a podcast if I couldn't demolish of course. a legend. <laughs> so I would like to quote from an article by Atam Henkin, Hashem Yunakim Domov, who was murdered by Hamas terrorists in 2015 alongside his wife Nama. He was the son of Rabbi Henkin, and he authored a number of articles on halacha, including on this topic. And he wrote as follows, that in the writings of the Rishonim, we find a direct and explicit reference to this precise scenario of kidnapping and ransom. One of the Rishonim writes that one of the great Torah scholars of the generation was seized by the ruler and held in captivity in prison until his death. The ruler kept him captive in order to collect great sums of money for him. And this rishain stated that it was prohibited to give in to the ruler's demands for the sake of the public good, except if he is the leader of the generation. Now, this ruling that I just mentioned doesn't refer to the story of the Maram. It is brought by the Rehazakin, who died over a hundred years before the Maram. Which means that all of Ashkenaz and Spain, the Rabbeinu Yenon, and the Rashba, and in Provence, the Me'iri, they all knew this halacha. And in fact, the Ramban, Nachmanides, writes the entire responsum word for word. And that means that if it was the leader of the generation... The Maram should have allowed himself to be ransomed, which echoes the astonishment of the Marshal. So, Etam Henkin writes that we need to relook at the Marshal. It's true that the Marshal initially says that he cannot fathom how Mayor of Rothenburg would not have allowed himself to be ransomed because the generation needed him, but the Marshal then gives another reason. Rovmeyer of Rottenberg was of the opinion that if they ransomed him, then every other great scholar in Germany would have been at risk of kidnap. As he puts it, they would have taken the greatest Torah scholars of the generation into captivity and Torah would have been forgotten. I also heard that some evil ruler wanted to seize his student, the Rosh. He got wind of this and fled to Spain and was saved by God's compassion and mercy. And because of this, the Chosid, the pious one, in other words, the Maram, said it's better that a little wisdom be lost from Klal Yisrael than the total loss of all Torah scholarship in Germany. And the sign that he was correct was that they stopped kidnapping diaspora sages which means that the Maram decided that it was better for him to languish in jail for the rest of his life to protect the rest of the scholars of Germany. And that is incredible. I mean, leadership, self-sacrifice, that's just, that is the Maram.
0: And not just the scholars, but Torah itself. In, Correct. Uh, yeah. So it, it is incredible, but he felt that paying the authorities was extortion and it yes. was wrong. yeah. But if he didn't want to be ransomed because it encouraged the non-Jews to do more kidnapping, why did someone in Frankfurt pay so much money 14 years after he died to rescue his body? I mean, that would also encourage the authority. Okay,
1: yes, that's a good question. Why would it be allowed, given that at that point, obviously, he could no longer teach terror to the public, so there's no, so to speak, loss of terror, and even the greatest of sages wouldn't be redeemed just for burial. Why did they? So there are various answers. The first is that the Marams worry that it would become, you know, open hunting season and they would kidnap more sages is less of a concern if they see that the Jews refuse to rescue them. And only sort of, you know, after they've died, they might be inclined to pay money. That's too much of a risk and waiting time for non-Jewish rulers.
0: I would have said the fear would be that they kill them. And then take the body, but I guess that might be too far-fetched.
1: Yes, because at that stage, people would simply be prepared to risk their lives to leave Germany because they know they're not just going to get kidnapped, they're going to get murdered. Second reason was that the next few years were devastating times in the history of Germany. The country was tragically emptied of its Hamid Chachamim, and there was almost no one left to kidnap The Maram died in prison in 1293. Five years later, two of his great disciples, who we quoted last week, the Mordechai and his brother-in-law, the Hagos Maimonis, were both murdered, Al-Kiddush Hashem, as martyrs in the Rindfleisch massacres of 1298. Five years later, in 1303, his greatest disciple, the Rosh, fled to Spain. And Ashkenaz was depleted. You know, the first golden age of the sages of of Ashkenaz comes to an end after nearly 300 years, starting with Rabbeinu Gershom. And it wouldn't be revived until the Maharil and perhaps his teachers, which is a half a century later. Which means that by the time the Muram's body was returned in 1307, sadly enough, there was no need for concern that the ruler would seize another equivalent Torah scholar. There weren't any. It could also be that the benefactor, Alexander Wimpfen, didn't pay anywhere near the amount of the original demand. We have no idea how much he actually paid. We know he paid his fortune, but we don't know how much that was. And it's also possible that maybe he never asked anybody before he spent the money involved. He wasn't going to the communities, so maybe he just did it. There is also an on proven approach to this, which is written at length in an academic paper I came across recently, which suggests that a particular responsum that I'm going to come to later this evening, written as a question by Alexander, is this same Alexander who redeemed the Maram. And the reason he redeemed the Maram's body is to try and atone for previous sins in life.
0: Interesting. I guess the truth is, whatever the reason, his grave has survived, what, nearly 700 years, and it's still very visible, very visited. Yep. It's an incredible act that he did.
1: And if you think about it, his cava is one of the handful of rishonim in the whole world whose grave is identifiable. You know, of all the graves from the years of the Rishonim, 1,000 to 1,500, there's nothing in Spain. Rabbeinu the Ritvor, the Rum, There's nothing in Italy. There's nothing in France of the Balitos. Ironically, Germany has most of that handful in Worms, Mainz and Speyer. And it survived the upheavals of history, including the Holocaust. Although for the full reason behind that, you'll have to read my article in Ami magazine over Schwurz about Worms. But, yes, it is a place where people now can, doven, can go to. OK, so last week we built up a picture of his life, but we now need perhaps to focus a little bit more on his writings to see the history of his times. Um, And for that, I would like to first pick up on Rabbi Zimmerman's third responsum last week, where Rabbi Zimmerman explained the concept of takonos ha'ir, that in certain cases, even if the Talmud decides something, there exists in certain circumstances the ability of the town to override it. This is the idea of, you know, the rights of the individual. The rights of the tzibur, of the community. It's one of the most fundamental elements in all of the Muram's writings. More than 80 of his truvas deal with community. The definitions of individual freedom, of government by consent, I mean Jewish government, and the limitation of the power of the majority, of the importance of group responsibility. So... You know, this isn't a podcast on constitutional law or philosophy, so I'm not going to elaborate to the degree that the Maram did. But I just want to explain historically that the need to decide between, on the one hand, communal needs and on the other hand, the individual rights of a Jew really emerges in the Middle Ages. It wasn't necessary in the times of the Gumara And that's why the Mahram was able to override certain hanhogas, certain practices, because community hadn't really yet been conceptualized. Whereas now, since the Jews didn't belong to any of the feudal classes, they had virtual self-government. And the secular government, the non-Jewish government, consented to this because Jewish self-government made it easier to collect taxes from the Jews. The government now taxes the community as a whole, and the community taxes its members. But how much tax does each person pay? Does it follow wealth? Is it, you know, based on your IRS returns? Is it based on land value? Is it like council tax in England? Is it simply that everybody over bar mitzvah or over 20 pays? How 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 is it done?
0: And presumably also what right does an individual or a minority have to protest against the community? Yeah.
1: Now, I'm going to share two actual examples, which you wouldn't necessarily associate with this concept, but they are also at the heart of this question. One question addressed to the Maram is as follows. There is a town where there are only 10 male Jews, exactly a minion, and one wants to leave town. Can the others force him to stay? And the Maram says if they don't have a minion without him, yes, they can force him to stay or force him to hire someone to take his place. And he quotes a Tseft in Bov that the people of a community have the right to force each other to pay to build a shul or to buy a sefer So you can use coercion to satisfy the needs of a community. And this would apply if there's only one bathhouse keeper or, or one baker in a, in a Kehillah. And before Yontov, he wants to go home. We can prevent him from doing so. Why? Because the tsibur, the community, has certain rights over the individual. This is all being conceptualized now in Germany, right? Here's another case. Um, Reuven and Schimmen, right, A and B, were captured and held for ransom. The former Reuven was rich and Schimmen was poor. So Reuven spent money with the help of his mother and he effected the release of both Reuven and Shimon. Reuven now says that since Shimon asked to be ransomed, To to be redeemed, rather. He should pay for his share of expenses. And Sherman says, I didn't ask to be redeemed. Um, You know, I was in jail. I would have found a way out. It brings
0: a bell with a Gomorrah. That's one can uh, pay for something without someone's knowledge.
1: Right. So the Maram says as follows. A Jew can be ransomed or redeemed, in other words, even against his express will, and then be charged with the expenses incurred. Uh, because a captive in the hands of a non-Jew, his, his life's in danger. And therefore, anybody who um, gets him out is praiseworthy and entitled to all the expenses. Um, and in fact, Jews threatened by a common danger can force one another to contribute um, their share, even if the wealth is not being looked at as a factor, as a clause. Um, and therefore they have to share the expenses. There will be some allowance made for wealth, but Shimon will have to pay some of his way.
0: Even though the rich person would have paid the ransom anyway?
1: Yeah. You benefited, now pay up.
0: So seeing that this is a whole new concept, he must have had a source for deciding that the community's affairs take such precedence, even over the individual.
1: Source, yes. But he expanded what it was into areas that had never been asked in halacha. You find this happening in the 20th century when, let's say, medical trialers came up, for instance, that they were able to trace ideas in the Gemara. But equally, as Rabbi Zimmerman mentioned, they were able to override them when they felt that the, the, the setup was
0: very, very different. I find even the concept that there wasn't always the idea of community is fascinating because that's all yeah. we've known.
1: I mean, we could go into it, but I just think it yeah. would take away from the history approach. But through his writings, you can see that quite clearly. Now he does write that to create Kahila rules in the first place. You've got this town. They're now setting up a community. It's got to have the complete consent of all its local members. Although complete consent, does that mean majority or unanimity? Also a major dispute this time in Jewish history. It's not only the Maram that's dealing with it, but he has a very strong hand in it. And from that point on. The entire community agrees on all regulations. Either they have sort of a constitutional assembly each time, or they elect the shiva tuvei the seven, so to speak, governors, who then have the right to make laws and enforce fines. Now, obviously, in non-layman areas, in areas of halacha, so the rabbi decides you can't you can't have a majority rule to, to go against uh, halacha. But this is, so to speak, constitutional, and it's groundbreaking, and the maram is the single greatest force behind it. Right. So you might think that he had such broad shoulders and was, uh, we mentioned last week, for, for almost 50 years, the, the, the Supreme Court of Appeal. And that's why he could do this. So let's see this next truva. The Muram writes, I have heard that communities have been slandering me For having annulled a marriage vow, in other words, a Kedushin, which was done solely in the presence of relatives. In other words, who are invalid to be witnesses because they're related to either the Hosn or the Kala. Reuven and Reuven's sister's son, in this case. And communities have been slandering me on the ground that I annulled it without needing a get. Bill of divorce. And their outrage and indignation has been made known to me. And I've become an object of conversation and gossip. Who say that I illegitimately dissolved a woman's marriage and the Maram writes, I am not weakened by such malicious slander, nor by the many other accusations which are not fit to be written down. This is the God La that they're talking about, yeah? Uh, the, and he says, "...the betrothal problems involved a nephew of Rebqay and who permitted the marriage of his daughter to a young man in the presence of biblically disqualified witnesses. And subsequently, the bride or her father became displeased with the match and wanted to annul it. And I ruled that the old condition was null and void, and she can marry anyone she wants without the necessity of receiving a divorce." And Reb Sedek wrote to me, raising doubts as to the correctness of this decision, telling me that his teacher from Speyer disagreed with it. And in fact, a, there was a storm of protest against the Maram. Rabbis and leaders of communities in Shum in Speyer, in Voms, and in Mainz became incensed. And they heaped abuse on the Maram. And they pronounced a against those involved in the action. They were probably not insane enough to include the Maram in this Khairam, um, but they wanted to force this woman to receive a divorce from her sort of new second Hassan because she'd got remarried by then. And the Maram wrote a sharp answer to the leaders of these three communities. And he says, we have never seen revered teachers of old act in the manner of the above mentioned community leaders. Differences of opinion have often arisen amongst the great authorities, some prohibiting or others permitted. But never did anyone dare place under cherim, under ban, those who had acted contrary to his opinion. The Torah is free to anyone who is capable of arriving at a correct decision. You have gathered and associated yourselves with people who do not understand the intricacies of the laws of marriage and divorce, and I most vigorously protest.
0: Wow. Right. I wonder what the other side held. I mean, I wonder if it could be some sort of Maris Iron or the fact that rumors would start. I wonder what happened to (laughs) those other people.
1: (laughs) Then we have another fascinating trooper. The question, can a man force his wife to receive a divorce from him because she had brought her shady boyfriend into their home and the boyfriend had threatened to kill the husband if he didn't treat his wife nicely, <laughs> which doesn't sound very 13th century, right. right? And now this Truva has long been published, but there's a manuscript version which has an additional sentence at the opening where the Maram writes in his answer, concerning the young fellow, your relative, who you sent to me to heal him of his leprosy, I think you should be... First to heal him, after which everyone else may continue. So the assumption is that you know the questioner isn't only asking for halachic advice, but while he's asking, you know, he may as well ask uh, this, this uh, great uh, individual uh, to, as a as a mystic, maybe he can heal the seriously ill. And clearly it would appear that the Maram wasn't enthused with the new profession that was assigned to him. And he suggested that the Inquirer himself should heal the leper.
0: Without any instruction as to how. Which is a little odd. <laughs> yeah. yeah, how do you cure leprosy? So,
1: take a new look at the Truva. It is possible to understand the matter in a completely different light, based on the Gomorrah in Yovomus, which says that an evil woman is like Tsaras, is leprous to her husband. This woman is in the category of a wicked wife. And the basic question is, was he allowed to divorce her against her will? Would he allowed to force her into a get? But that can also be understood as, can he cure the leprosy by allowing divorce? He wasn't being asked for, you know, some potion. It was purely halacha. Can the husband force a divorce under such circumstances? And he answers, yeah, it's in your hands. You want to do it? Go ahead. And it's basically good fortune that the sentence was left in the manuscript copy. And the reason for that, last week we mentioned, you know, often uh, history is missing. This particular truva comes from a set of truvas edited by the Maram's brother, of Baram, where, unlike normally, the truvas have not been anonymized. The introductions are there, the cities in which they took place are there, and there's a lot of historical data in these opening and closing remarks. So we have added pieces of information, and in this case, a piece of advice. And normally, the copyists who wrote out these trouvers were only interested in the halachic content, and they didn't bother with prefaces and, you know, conclusions. So we are fortunate here. And in fact, from this very set of responses, we also learn that questions were sent to the Maram from northern Italy, Pizarro in one case. And in his introduction to the answer, the Maram notes that the Shael, the inquirer, Rebuesif of Pizarro, had insisted that the Maram should carefully address himself to all the details of the question to which the Maram answers, I don't have the time. And answering in detail is very time consuming. I could have learnt an entire Masechta of Gomorrah instead. And he notes that he would have been more detailed if there'd only been one or two questions. But this scholar had chosen to ask
0: 14. This is advice that's still very relevant. Yes, absolutely.
1: <laughs> so on to another truva about Eretz Yisrael, as well as Halacha. It's four questions. The first one is, what is the merit of emigrating to Eretz To which the Maram answers, my knowledge on this subject doesn't go beyond the statement in the Gemara. Now, the person who emigrates to Eretz is absolved from sin, which applies to a person who commits no further sins in Eretz It doesn't mean do what you like and you're fine. Second related question, does a person buried in Eretz escape the Chibut HaKever, the agonize, agonies of the, of the grave of rolling to Eretz which generally nowadays we say the answer is yes. And the Maram answers, I don't know, which is interesting. And you've got to wonder if that is the case, because he was a student of the Hasidic Ashkenaz, and they would have discussed this type of thing. And I am wondering... I haven't looked into it enough, but I'm wondering whether he wanted to just stall the questioner from moving to Eretz Israel for other non-halachic reasons. And therefore, there's a sort of discouraging him from this perspective.
0: That will always be the issue with short answers. We can only speculate. Yep, absolutely
1: third question, why did the Amaroim of the Talmud fail to move to Eretz Yisrael? And he says because it would have seriously interfered with their learning, because in Eretz Yisrael they would have had to spend much time finding a means of support, and we find that a person is even allowed to leave Eretz Yisrael to to study with his uh, teacher of Torah, and therefore you definitely shouldn't break off your Uninterrupted studies in Chutzla or to go to Eretz Israel, if your means of support would only happen with great difficulty. That would definitely be a serious opinion to contend with, although in today's world, obviously, it's much easier. But if you were talking middle of the 19th century, for instance, it
0: can mean starvation.
1: Yeah. And the last question on this topic was, what is the meaning of the statement in the Gemara, a person who lives in Chutzla it in the diaspora lives as if he doesn't have a god? To which he answers that Hashem's presence is primarily concentrated in Eretz Yisrael, and therefore a person's tefillis there ascend directly to the Kisar Kavit,
0: to Hashem's throne. So we could see that the Maram gave very curt, short responses. Did Sometimes. We? Do we ever see him get annoyed at the questioners? Because I'm assuming he got hundreds from...
1: Thousands. Listen, occasionally you do see him display anger, but that is for particular reasons, not for his sort of, you know... Frustration. Draw- yes. It's when a case is repeatedly brought up, you know, they're persistent litigants who will not accept Psuck. Or if a Jew threatens to go to the non-Jewish courts, then he gets, you know, angry. But there are responses which show his knowledge of history. In one particular case, it goes to the origins of, of Ashkenaz. He's asked, do the laws of Avelos of mourning have to be observed for the death of an apostate who's a you know, close member of family, which is presumably somebody who either converted when the Christians came to town and remained a non-Jew or potentially somebody who voluntarily converted. And he answers, it's written in the Goenim that if a Meshumad, an apostate, dies, the family need not observe Shiva or avelus for them. Based on the Gomorrah in Sanhedrin, which says that those who were the Haruge Bezdin, the people, when when the Sanhedrin carried out the capital punishment, the death penalty, so their relatives don't mourn for them. And even though the Gemara makes it clear that by virtue of this person being put to death, they achieve atonement and kapora, even so, they don't mourn. How much more so in this case, where it's a Mishumud whose misdeeds are never expiated. And then the Maram adds, and although Rabenu Gershom mourned his son for two weeks, this is not the halacha. He did so out of his intensely bitter grief. Which means that the son of possibly the greatest Ashkenazi sage, Rabenu Gershom, who lived over a thousand years ago, his son became an apostate. Now, we don't know the circumstances, the date, but, you know, you want to know about kids off the derech. Well, that's what happened to Rabbeinu Gershom.
0: Wow. Talking about his writings, you mentioned last week that he quotes Fadi Poskem as well as Ashkenazi. Can you talk yes. about that?
1: Yeah, he displays a very high regard for the Rif and the Rambam, Maimonides. They are two out of the three main pillars of Svardi Psak. The third pillar is his own pupil, the Rosh. And he decides halacha in their favor from time to time, which, by the way, means that Ashkenazi halacha is far more mixed than you would think, and and so is Svardi halacha. You know, to think you're a purist, that we're Svardim, we only do, or we're Ashkenazim, we only do, doesn't exist. (laughs) And his response uh, reached communities across Europe. Uh, you know, the Rush Bar in Spain asked him questions. So that also uh, spread his suck there. Now, last week, you will recall, we touched on the question that during the massacre of the Jews of Koblenz, an individual, we'll call him Reuven, uh, his wife and four sons begged him to kill them before they fell into the hands of their enemies. And he did so. And he was ready to kill himself. But non-Jews saved his life and therefore maybe, maybe they could have saved his family's life had he he waited. I mean, can you imagine living with that type of question? And he inquired of the Maram what he is required to do for, for penance, for Truva, for this sin. And the Maram answered, I find great difficulty in deciding this case. Because a person is permitted to take their own life for Kiddush Hashem, but whether you're permitted to take the life of others, even for a deeply pious reason, is questionable. Now, we know this happened in the Crusades, right? And the Maram writes, it's questionable. However, continues the Maram, such an act became widely accepted as permissible. And we know of many great authorities who martyred their own sons and daughters during the First Crusade. Even Reb did so, as he later wrote about in Akinah. And therefore, to require special penance for this would defame these earlier authorities, which means that even though the Maram himself might have decided differently about this martyrdom, He's not going to undo the ruling of old in this case.
0: I don't necessarily open up a halachic discussion. But surely the reason why one gives up one's life is because it's one of the three grave sins, but murdering is also. So why would one but, take precedence to kill someone else?
1: In other words... Um,
0: why would you be allowed to commit murder?
1: In order, could, Because you're doing it to save their life. The only reason you're doing it is because they will otherwise uh, be forced to accept Christianity or they're worried they would accept Christianity. In other words, it's not. It's one of
0: three great sins.
1: Yes, but, but you're not doing it to save your life. You're doing it to save their life. Very different. But it is a, a question as to what action should be taken. So, okay, uh, let's perhaps deal with one more truva. Uh, Once again, we'll call him Reuven, had um, non-Jews go and arrest his Jewish business opponents. The Jews fled, but they were pursued, and one of them was killed by one of these non-Jews. And Reuven now claims he just intended to frighten his Jewish opponents into answering his summons to court, but didn't intend anyone to get killed, what is his status in halacha? The Maram answers he is fully responsible for the murder of his opponent because when a Jew falls into the clutches of Gentiles, his life as well as his property is in jeopardy and the non-Jews display no pity or restraint, especially when it's commissioned by another Jew and their, their their cruelty is boundless. And therefore, a person who delivers another Jew into the hands of non-Jews is directly responsible. And this person is to be considered as much a murderer as if he'd actually killed his opponent with his own hands. And no penance is too harsh. He should be flogged, publicly disgraced and made to wander as an exile and his face should become black through fasting for a year or two and seeking atonement for his crime and i subscribe to any punishment you may impose upon him this is my rum rights
0: you left the best for last
1: now you might wonder why i finished with that one well the questioner is called alexander and it's about this truva that speculation exists whether he was the one who ransomed the Maram's body. But as we said, there's no solid proofs that links the two at all. Okay, to end, uh, we mentioned last week that the Maram was a pupil of great Balitosis, but also of Hasid Ashkenaz. And in various rulings, not many, but a few, he found answers to questions through dreams. The Hasidic Ashkenaz studied an area of Kabbalah called the Hecholis which practiced, so to speak, dream questions. And therefore, it is possible, though probable even, that he initiated a she'elas chaleim, a, a, a dream question, like they did. So you have a ruling, ordinary area of halacha. A worker can't be paid in straw, teven Vakash, because it's too difficult to gather it up. And this is based on the Gemara, which says this thing. The question is Does the Gemara refer exclusively to these materials, or does it include things like wheat and fruit, which are also difficult to gather up? The Maram rules that we follow a narrow interpretation. Why? Because he received that answer through a dream. There's another case where he finds, where he changes his psuk actually, based on what was proven to him in a dream. And we also find in the Tor in uh, Simon uh, Reshpey Vov in Jeredea, the Tor writes that even though there is a dispute as to whether a base hamedrash needs a mezuzah, because it's not a place of residence or storage, the Maram did affix one after he felt the presence of a Ruach Ra, a bad spirit, during the day. This is what the Tor writes in a Halachic work. And therefore, based on the above, it's unsurprising that the Maram wore both uh, types of pairs of Twilin, Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam, which he adopted from his teacher, the Oruzerua, from him back to the Hasidic Ashkenaz. And of course, the Maram would therefore be one of the first to record this. Bearing in mind that he was born less than 50 years after the after Rabbeinu Tam died in 1171. So we have, you know, in addition to his encyclopedic knowledge working without swarim in prison, we also have other ways which he decided halacha. As I say, not often, but he did that as well. His life was uh, incredible, and his impact on halacha nowadays is enormous.
0: Wow, that was Fascinating. Thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch, and thank you again, Rabbi Zimman. Um, please leave any reviews, questions, feedback. You can leave them on Spotify these days, but you can always email us through, and we will address them, as well as any other suggestions for further guest speakers. Um, we'd also welcome that too. Rabbi Hirsch, what's next week? We
1: are going to do a two-part series, long promised, on Masura, on the history of of the Torah being given at Mount Sinai.
0: Thank you. And finally, the amount of people I've had to respond to that's coming. Right. Um, Yes, Hashem. Looking forward. Thank you and good night.